the private concern of individual Christians. As we've seen so clearly in this series already, God created our physical bodies, and that includes our sexuality. God created us sexual beings, and that is very good. To reject the body or to demean the body or to think so negatively about our bodies that we don't express gratitude for them is not Christian. Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, includes a painstaking uncovering of how our American secular society has creatively and decisively severed our physical bodies from our personhood. And she traces the implications of this unbiblical, unnatural split for abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, transgenderism, and several other issues of our day. This personhood theory, as it's often called, is appealed to repeatedly in court cases and in legislation designed to regulate how we as Americans practice and understand human life. To encounter this, she powerfully demonstrates how genuine human rights, as enshrined in our Constitution, can only truly exist when the biblical picture of the value of the human body is recognized and affirmed and even celebrated. Don't give in to the lie that all that matters is the spiritual or all that matters is the soul. God created us in physical bodies and he has designed human beings to exist as a unified person, body and soul together forever. And these bodies are sexual and gendered. But sex is not just a physical thing. It's an aspect of who we are as persons. It is a part of our identity that is not to be separated from our biology. The remedy to sexual brokenness and sexual immorality, ironically, is to elevate our valuing of the human body to the dignity which the Bible gives to the human body. If you've never heard of Nancy Piercy and you're interested in understanding more about these topics, I highly recommend you read Love Thy Body. We have one copy in the library now, and I have a copy in my office that I'd be glad to loan to you, or it's available on Amazon, of course. Also, just so you know, we have a host of books in the library on various issues related to sexuality that you can check out at any time. More important than what Nancy Piercy says is what the Bible says. The Bible has a lot to say about sex and sexuality, and we must begin at the very beginning to frame our discussion. The first reference to sexual activity in Scripture occurs in Genesis 2.24, where Moses interjects a comment at the conclusion of the narrative of the marriage of the original human couple, Adam and Eve. He comments on the typical marital customs of his own day, which he sees rooted in that original wedding, and he writes, and they shall become one flesh. This refers primarily to the sexual union between a husband and a wife. All covenants include a ritual or symbolic act that makes them official. And what act could more clearly reflect the union of a husband and a wife joined together by God? Thus, the sexual union of a husband and a wife serves as a symbolic act that ratifies or finally, officially puts into effect the covenant relationship of marriage. The sexual act in and of itself does not constitute or establish a marriage covenant, but when the sexual act follows, comes after the public oath of commitment, 
It ratifies finally and conclusively the union between a man and a woman. Unlike most covenant signs, however, God intends the covenant partners in the marriage covenant to repeat this covenant sign so that sex within marriage can serve as something like a covenant renewal ceremony, powerfully expressing again and even deepening the mutual commitment, loyalty, and love of marriage. In fact, the phrase, become one flesh, implies a process rather than simply a single unifying event. The process of becoming one flesh involves deepening intimacy and strengthening unity over time, partially, though not exclusively, through repeated enjoyment of sexual intimacy. God joins together a man and a woman in legitimate marriage, as Jesus indicated in Mark 10:9. He does this through the covenantal acts, overseeing and witnessing the public recitation of promises and giving them to each other physically for the consummate symbolic act of sexual union. Interestingly, the Bible never specifies the terms of a marriage covenant for us. However, one relatively obscure piece of legislation within the Mosaic Law does hint at the kinds of things probably involved. Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11, says... When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, that is to marry her, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. And skipping down to verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Exodus 21, 7-11 presents the scenario of an Israelite man who purchases another Israelite man's daughter as a female slave. This would happen most likely because the girl's father could not pay a debt. When he purchases the girl, he decides to marry her. Then, for some unspecified reason, the man becomes displeased with his wife. This law forbids him to sell her back into slavery. However, if the man chooses to marry a second wife, this law also commands that he must continue to provide his first wife with food, clothing, and marital rights, a phrase that probably refers to enjoying sex together. These three elements likely represent three categories of promises typical in a marriage covenant. Physical provision and protection and the continued enjoyment of sex as a sort of covenant renewal ceremony. If the man refuses to provide these for her, the law commands him to divorce her. With him receiving no monetary benefit from her. God commands divorce in this extreme case, it seems, because the man has broken the fundamental terms of the covenant as summarized by the three headings, food, clothing, and sex. Now let's move on to talk about gender and human sexuality. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we learn that God has created humanity, man and woman together, in His own image. 
As we said earlier in this series, gender differentiation, existing as male and female and marrying as male and female, serves the practical purpose of facilitating procreation. But it also serves to communicate the unified differentiation within the Trinity. This unity within the Trinity is not accomplished by a kind of sexual unity. God has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which reflects the nature of the eternal relationality of God. He has chosen to reflect this the nature, uh, this relational nature of His identity in His image bearers in the form of gender differentiation, whereby male and female both look and function differently while at the same time have the potential to be deeply unified through sexual union as well as other kinds of cooperation. Gender is therefore deeply tied to each individual's personal identity. But gender is also deeply tied to each individual's anatomy and even the DNA. In fact, the Hebrew words translated male and female indicate the anatomical distinction primarily. One writer summarizes like this, The man is pictured as the one whose gender gives him an external sexual organ, while the woman is pictured as the responder who literally receives the man into her body in the most sacred act of intimacy. When Genesis 2 describes the creation of the woman, we read about her being taken out of man. And as God constructed her femininity, her femaleness, He created her physically in such a way that in sexual union, the man would literally enter into the woman. To quote another good summary of this point, God made the female body such that it receives the man. Furthermore, the woman is the one who carries the developing child for nine months, gives birth, and nurses her baby with her own breasts. God has designed the female body to nurture and to respond. The man is the one who enters the woman. In this sense, he leads and initiates in a life-giving way. So, the anatomical distinction between male and female is communicating something something special about God's design for creating humanity in two genders. But we can go a bit deeper. Gender is first of all defined by chromosomes and then by anatomy. Parents can possibly discover whether the Y chromosome is present, which would indicate their baby is male, as early as seven weeks of gestation by means of a blood test. And the appearance of that Y chromosome in a baby is determined at conception. Thus, whether a person is male or female is a fact determined at conception by chromosomes. Moreover, after about 14 weeks of gestation, a baby's genitals typically become visible and distinguishable as male or female through ultrasound technology. God is at work orchestrating the biological reproductive processes. Job 10, 11, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. David joyfully praises the Lord in Psalm 139, 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Thus, God determines 
each human's gender at conception. Whether a person is male or female is something God defines and determines. Anatomical gender and the sexuality that goes with it it was not added to Adam and Eve as though it were some secondary, less important, non-essential aspect of their humanity. Rather, Adam was created male. Eve was created female. And every human being since then, in the miracle of conception, God creates males and females. From this, we can conclude that God intends each male's maleness and each female's femaleness to be permanent, eternal even. In the resurrection, we males will be resurrected as males and females will be resurrected as females. Some of the functions of maleness and femaleness, such as the way males and females unite in marriage and sexual union, will not carry over into the resurrection. But we have no biblical reason to conclude that our sexual identity, our created sexual being, will, can, or should end or change. It is this good but broken body including the sexual parts that will be transformed into a glorious body when Jesus returns. If God created male and female together to serve as His image in the beginning, how much more will restored and resurrected male and female together reflect God's image in the new creation? Humanity has been abundantly creative in finding ways to distort what God has created as a fundamental good. We have discovered ways to alter our anatomy, to surgically replace sex organs, to modify hormone levels chemically, and even potentially to modify chromosomal makeup. As Christians, we do and should grieve with people who find their created individual identities as dissatisfying or repulsive, whether the, whatever the causes may be. Moreover, we have to acknowledge the reality of people born with ambiguous genitalia, chromosomal disorders, and other physical conditions that result in significant confusion about sexuality. The term intersex is becoming more common to identify situations in which, in which something is anatomically or biologically askew. The fall of humanity into sin, described in Genesis 3, had negative effects on every aspect of existence, including producing biological breakdowns, physical diseases and disorders, and the possibility of injuries that fracture human life at the very foundations. We are not in Eden anymore. Nevertheless, anyone's efforts to transform their own gender are a sinful distortion of God's creative design. The remedy... The true remedy for the pain and the confusion experienced by individuals in these situations is the redemptive grace of God in Jesus Christ. As society supports individual freedom to define one's own gender by choice, regardless of DNA or anatomy, Christians must affirm the biblical teaching that gender is not a social construct that may be individually chosen. It is biologically determined by God at conception. Moreover, the creation of the original pair of human beings as specifically male and female 
indicates that God creates gender differentiation within humanity, and it is good. Thus, each individual human being receives their sexual gender identity from God as a good gift. Individual human beings, or societies of human beings for that matter, do not have the right before God to define or determine or change anyone's gender. Indeed, it's helpful to remember that God owns our bodies. He owns every human body on the planet and throughout history by virtue of His creation of the physical body. And He further owns the body of the Christian whom He has purchased by the death of His Son. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Thus, God alone has the right to define what is appropriate and what is inappropriate in the usage of our individual human bodies. And every human being is responsible to glorify and honor God with the body He has given to him and to her. Having said that, we must recall that past sexual misbehavior and endeavors to modify one's gender in all of its forms may be forgiven by God. In fact, we must say more than this. We must acknowledge that all are sinners, and indeed all are sexual sinners. Anyone, anyone may trust Jesus and repent from any kind of sin, including all forms of sexual sin, and receive God's transforming grace. The road of repentance in these cases may be fraught with unique challenges and unique pain, but God's grace is sufficient. And Alfred Allman Bible Church is committed to walking with and supporting anyone seeking to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. Most everyone who makes these kinds of decisions to identify as a gender that doesn't match their biological sex has a story. I've read many of these stories, and they are all full of pain People who are wrestling with these kinds of decisions or are dealing with the aftermath of having acted to make these kinds of changes should receive our deepest compassion. We must become the kind of community that can effectively welcome and love people marred by these effects of the fall or these difficult circumstances or even these sinful choices. We must refuse to mock or joke about people. And we must refuse to shut out people even as we also refuse to abandon the truth of Scripture. We should recognize that Jesus identifies with the kind of mismatch many people feel in their identities. His sense of mismatch was not connected to His gender. In an even more profound mismatch, Jesus had to process the reality of His full divinity, experiencing the limitations and weaknesses of His full humanity. He joyfully embraced the mismatch in order to accomplish the salvation of sinners whose identities are broken in a host of ways, including sexually. And now we shall talk about some of that distorted sexuality. As was mentioned earlier, humanity's rebellion against God began in Genesis 3 and resulted in a downward spiraling fall into an ever-increasing number of distortions to God's design for human sexuality and sexual behavior. 
Writers of different biblical books found multiple occasions to discuss some of these aberrations. Though we shouldn't imagine that Scripture would exhaustively examine every kind of sexual sin. Rather, we see the positive picture given in Genesis 1 and 2 as setting the proper boundaries for sexuality and sexual behavior. Nevertheless, to be clear on certain contested issues of our day, we deem it important to address briefly some categories of sexual deviance. And according to Jesus in Mark 7:21, all sexual immorality comes from our hearts. Right here. Perhaps we can begin with a comprehensive, positive statement summarizing the Bible's positive teaching about good and right sexual behavior. You'll see this on the screen. We'll be referring to it regularly. It's in your sermon notes if you've got those. In the context of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman, biblically legitimate sexual behavior is the good, private, free and joyful pursuit of the sexual pleasure and satisfaction of the spouse. We've already discussed the purposes for sexual activity in marriage in an earlier message, but framing a summary description of sex itself helps us see more clearly what the Bible identifies as specific deviations from this model, as well as clarifying some of the rationale for God's rejection of these deviations. First, the context of the marriage covenant between one man and one woman rules out several possible sexual behaviors. For example, sexual behavior between humans and animals is clearly ruled out. Not only is bestiality explicitly prohibited within the Mosaic Law, Exodus 22.19, Leviticus 18.23, Leviticus 20.15 and 16, but it's also implicitly prohibited in Genesis 2.19 and 20. Since God paraded the animals before Adam and none were deemed fit for him. That is, suitable for human companionship and equality. If the animals are not even suitable companions for humans, then sexual intimacy with an animal should not even be considered. Moreover, the context of the marriage covenant between one man and one woman also rules out all sexual behavior between a man and another man or a woman and another woman. Thus, homosexual behavior in all its forms is ruled out from the beginning. While homosexual behavior is repeatedly condemned specifically in several places in Scripture, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 10, 1 Timothy 1.9 and 10, it's clear from the Genesis account that homosexual behavior is contrary to God's design for sexual behavior. One reason for this is that neither sex between two men nor sex between two women can produce children and thus fulfill one of the fundamental purposes for sex and marriage. Another reason is that a same-sex couple cannot accurately reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, a relationship which highlights difference joined together in unity. The Apostle Paul also indicates that homosexual behavior is a result of God's judgment on human idolatry and sinfulness, describing homosexual desire as dishonorable and homosexual behavior as contrary to nature and shameless, Romans 1, 26 and 27. That Paul condemns homosexual desire 
reminds us that our inclinations and desires can be sinful, even before we ever act on them in visible ways. Many people experience same-sex attraction, including Christians. Whether or not there might be a genetic predisposition in a particular individual toward this kind of orientation, we need to remember that sin is bigger than simply the choices we make. Because of the original rebellion of Adam and Eve, every human being comes into this world with disordered desires, sinful tendencies, and animosity toward God and His ways. Jesus died not only to provide forgiveness for the sins we commit and our sinful failures to behave as we should behave, Jesus died to repair the fundamental brokenness at the core of our identities. And that brokenness very often impacts human sexuality, even producing dysfunctional sexual attraction. The context of the marriage covenant between one man and one woman also rules out sexual contact between unmarried people, including premarital sex, adultery, and prostitution. All sexual behavior outside of marriage is a distortion of God's design. Jesus also made plain that even the desire for sexual contact with someone who is not our spouse is ruled out as the very heart of adultery. He said in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and you know that could be flipped around, anyone who looks at a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Thus sexual fantasizing in the mind about someone besides one's spouse is ruled out as well. And finally, the context of the marriage covenant between one man and one woman rules out all forms of polygamy and concubinage. The marriage relationship, and thus the sexual relationship, is meant to be singularly exclusive. This is first implied in the leaving and cleaving idea presented in Genesis 2.24. Marriage creates a relationship of absolute freedom from outside interference both from one's family of origin and also anybody else. Thus, incest, sexual contact between immediate family members, is ruled out, as specified in Leviticus 18, 6-18. And incest between parents and children is implicitly ruled out. A husband cleaving to his wife implies a tight connection in which there's no room for an additional party. Building on this, the commandment against adultery in Exodus 20.14 is worded in such a way that highlights and emphasizes a man's right to the protection of this exclusive sexual relationship with his wife. This is also a reflection of the relationship God desires with his people. His bride must not give herself to any other gods, either alongside him or instead of him. Exodus 20 verse 3. His covenant relationship with his people is also singularly exclusive. And before we leave this point, let's observe the reality that many men in the Old Testament clearly married multiple women and or had concubines. While it's clear that God allowed these unions to occur, and there are laws in the Mosaic Law that regulate these relationships, particularly focused on protecting the women... 
Often the way the stories of these families are told casts a dark shadow over the taking of additional wives, and the negative results of these unions are often highlighted. Moreover, there are several statements in the Old Testament decrying or condemning this practice. For example, Deuteronomy 17.17, directed toward kings, says, And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. If that's the law for the king, how much more is it the law for every other man in Israel? Back to our definition. Second, we observe that sex is good and for good. The sexual union of a husband and wife is designed by God as a fundamental human good. Thus, for a husband and wife to abstain from or neglect sex altogether is a sinful distortion of God's design. Paul commands married couples in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive one another of sex, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Likewise, for either a husband or a wife to use sex as a bargaining chip, a manipulative tool, or a means of harm is desperately wicked. Even simply to ignore the sexual aspect of one's marriage is a sinful failure, potentially demonstrating a lack of love, or at least improperly placed priorities. As commentator Dan Doriani observes, sexual union both seals and strengthens a marriage. Separation weakens affection. Now, having said that, I want to be sensitive to the reality that the breakdown of our physical bodies, whether due to age or disease, may prevent the full enjoyment of our sexuality as married couples. This is to be expected and approached with mercy, grace, and love between spouses. And I should say it often occurs sooner and more frequently than newlyweds ever expect. Back to our definition. Third, we observe that sex is private. Illicit sexual behavior is often described in the Bible as uncovering the nakedness or exposing someone, as in Leviticus 18, 6-19. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed at the end of Genesis 2. But after their rebellion in Genesis 3, clothing is the norm, at least out in public. Public nudity is not a return to Eden for sinners living in a fallen world. According to the Apostle Paul... Our hope is not to return to nakedness in Eden, but instead, in 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks of being further clothed in resurrection. Jesus was humiliated when they stripped him of his clothing to crucify him. He willingly experienced the shame of public nakedness so that we could experience the glory of being further clothed in the future. Moreover, the sexual parts of our bodies should remain covered in public view. This is surely implied by Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 12, 22-25, where he is using normal human covering of private parts as an illustration. However, the sexual parts of our bodies are designed by God, listen carefully, to provide pleasure for our spouses, but no one else. We'll see this clearly in Song of Songs over the next few weeks, but also consider Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. 
Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Your wife's breasts, no one else's. Your wife's body and nobody else's. One implication of this is that if you are not married, you don't have the right to look at or touch the sexual parts of any other person's body. Let me speak plainly and directly, if I haven't been doing that already. (laughs) If you're dating, courting, whatever, and you're not married yet, it will always, in every situation, be sinful for you to see or touch the sexual parts of any other person's body. And that would include touching sexual body parts covered by clothing. Too many younger dating couples are asking the question, how far is too far? Trying to examine and push the boundaries. This is the biblical line. Furthermore, seeking pleasure through looking at the sexual body parts of anyone besides our spouse is a sinful distortion of God's design. If you're not married, this means that you must not seek pleasure through looking at the sexual body parts of anyone. This rules out both the production of and the viewing of all forms of pornography, as well as the reading of so-called romance novels or other literature in which sexual encounters are described in explicit detail. And it certainly challenges us to consider carefully whether it is ever appropriate to view the sexual body parts of another person besides our spouse in any context, such as in a movie or on TV. Now, Surely there are exceptions, such as in the case of a medical examination. However, even in that case, the point still stands. In all contexts, we must not seek pleasure for ourselves by looking at the body of someone who is not our spouse. And this definitely includes any kind of voyeurism. Sexual behavior between a husband and a wife should be private not observed by anyone for any reason. Back to our definition. Fourth, we observe that sex is free. This speaks against all forms of prostitution as well as all forms of sexual abuse or unwelcome sexual contact of any kind or even any kind of unwelcome sexual attention. But in the context of marriage... It also reminds us that any kind of compulsion or pressure applied for the purpose of forcing a particular sexual activity is out of bounds. Biblical sex always involves sacrificing oneself to bring pleasure to another, but it also involves the free offer of ourselves to another. All forms of, if you do this, I'll do that, are sinful distortions of biblical sexuality, even within marriage. This is what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4, where he writes, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
I've heard too many men interpret, attempt to twist this passage to say the exact opposite of what Paul is really saying. See, they'll say, the Bible says I have authority over her body. She has to do what I want. When I hear things like that, in that moment, I have a very visceral, fleshly response. If I have a good relationship with the guy who says such a thing, my response might include, as my grandfather used to say, a good smack upside the head. Look at verse 3 again. The verb, the action word, the key word is the word give. First, the husband is commanded to give sexual pleasure to his wife. Give, not take. It is true, of course, that the wife is then commanded also to give sexual pleasure to her husband. But that command is directed to the wife. You, O husband, are not to put yourself in the position of the enforcer of God's commands. Now, what are we to make of this mutual authority statement in verse 4? The husband has authority over the wife's body, and the wife has authority over the husband's body, Paul says. What does that mean in this context? Remember that he's just commanded husbands to give sexual pleasure to their wives, and he's just commanded the wife to give sexual pleasure to her husband. The authority in view, then, would be the responsibility for providing sexual pleasure. Thus, to say that the husband has authority over his wife's body does not mean that he can use her body however he pleases. Instead, it means that he is responsible for so loving and caring for her body that he brings her maximum pleasure. It also means that she should not be expected or left alone to bring herself pleasure. Likewise, the wife is responsible for so loving and caring for her husband's body that she brings him maximum pleasure, and he should not be expected or left alone to bring himself sexual pleasure. The husband's responsibility for providing sexual pleasure for his wife is even reflected in the Mosaic law. How strange that this should have to be legislated. Deuteronomy 24.5 in the New King James Version says, "'When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business.'" He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Sex is to be a profound and unique reflection of the union between Christ and the church. Within the context of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman, sexual expression should be viewed as an opportunity to experience the beautiful freedom of being naked and not ashamed in the right way with the right person one's spouse. This freedom reflects the way that Christ has set the church free from bondage to the powers of Satan, sin, and death. Another implication of this is that sexual practices that utilize enslavement, forceful control, or domination are out of bounds. With some married couples, these practices may have come in through the influence of pornography, but they are reflective of distorted sexual desires. Pastor David White puts it this way, Jesus came to set captives free and calls us not to submit again to slavery 
Wanting to be humiliated or dominated is broken sexuality, as is dominating, controlling, or humiliating another person. This kind of behavior is a mockery of the great truths and hopes of the gospel. Back to our definition. Fifth, we observe that sex is joyful. God has designed sexual expression to be a physically delightful and emotionally satisfying experience. This rules out viewing sex in marriage as simply a duty or obligation to be performed. Physical arousal, emotional excitement, and pure desire should normally characterize sex in marriage. The intimacy sexual connection produces and cultivates is intended by God to increase the joy of both spouses. In fact, the delight of the sexual encounter itself is intended by God to support and encourage the joy and unity of the married couple in the other areas of life. This is the meaning of becoming one flesh. Finally, we describe sex fundamentally as the pursuit of the sexual pleasure and satisfaction of the spouse. Thus, selfish sex, pursuing sexual pleasure and for oneself at the expense of the spouse or irrespective of the spouse's pleasure is ruled out. Moreover, this would seem to rule out all forms of masturbation and sexual self-stimulation, which is further grounded in an awareness that our bodies, particularly the sexual aspects of our bodies, are given to us not to please ourselves, but to please a spouse. At this point, it's important to acknowledge that sex can be fraught with difficulty. For many, sex might be physically painful, And for those who have been the victims of sexual abuse, sex might be emotionally painful. We come again to the ugly reminders of the brokenness, fallenness, and sinfulness of this world. Because of this, sex is not often ideal. Instead, healthy sexual expression, even in the best of marriages, involves hard work and requires overcoming obstacles. However... Like most worthwhile work in the world, patient endurance, commitment to improve, willingness to ask for help, whether medical or psychological, clear and direct communication, and an unwavering desire to please the Lord can go a long way toward growth and joy in sexual understanding and expression within marriage. Now to conclude, I want to talk about the destruction and redemption of sexual sin and brokenness. First, the destruction of sexual sin and brokenness. We return to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Unrepentant sexual immorality in all of its forms, deviations from the Creator's good design for human sexual expression will lead to eternal destruction. Paul's list here is in no way exhaustive, but notice the sexual immor- that sexual immorality heads the list as a generic term that refer- refers to all forms of deviation from God's good design. And he also specifically mentions adultery and homosexuality. The people who practice these things without repentance 
will experience God's eternal judgment. There's more. 1 Corinthians 6.13 The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Skipping down to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul uses prostitution as kind of an extreme example, but his indication is that sexual union outside a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, illegitimate sexual union between a man and any woman who is not his wife, creates a real bond. But that bond is not marriage. It is a parody. And for those who are joined with Christ, these kinds of unions are completely out of bounds. Why? 1 Corinthians 6.18 Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Pastor David White writes, Sexual immorality is not a worse sin, but it is more personally destructive. Sexual sin damages the self in a way that is unique, unlike any other sin. Why? Paul points to the profound mystery, reminding us that sexuality is a reflection of the ultimate union with Jesus. Sexual sin dilutes the greatest wonder in the universe. The glorious hope of the world to come is living in a face-to-face relationship with Jesus, of which marriage and sexuality is the closest terrestrial analogy. But sexual sin, in all of its forms, is also destructive of other people. This is true even of the private consumption of pornography and masturbation. And it is also true even where there is consent between two people. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, Disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. I fear many in the church disregard Paul's words here. I know I did as a young Christian. Focus on verse 6 for just a moment. Paul warns of Christians wronging their siblings in this matter. The word wrong is translated defraud in the New American Standard Bible. If you could put the next slide up there, the New American Standard version there. Defraud, it's a financial term that speaks of embezzling funds, swindling someone out of their money or possessions, taking advantage of someone. Paul suggests that sexual immorality is not a victimless crime, ever. It is always ripping someone off. And, as in financial matters, it may happen in such a way that the victim doesn't even realize it. Or it may happen in such a way that the victim gave permission or was unwittingly complicit in the act. Let me address the younger folks directly for a moment. I'm 36. I'm not that old. 
I vividly remember what it was like as a teenage boy. I wish someone had said to me the things that I'm saying to you today. I read my Bible faithfully, and I wanted to please the Lord, but when growing closer in relationship to a girl, I found myself looking for every loophole, not really taking passages like this seriously. My emotions and my hormones overrode any good sense that I might have been developing at the time. The youth pastors I had, the very few other older Christians I had in my life, were not forceful enough in talking about these things, not biblical enough, I now know. They told me that these were gray areas. They told me that as long as I didn't try to push my girlfriend further than she wanted to go, then it was okay. Young brothers and sisters, it was not okay. It was never okay. I mishandled my sexuality in my youth. And I am responsible for robbing others of some measure of the joy of sexual expression in marriage. The road of repentance has been hard, but God's grace has been sufficient. Young people, take Paul's words seriously. As he says in Ephesians 5.3 in the NIV, But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. But Paul doesn't leave us to wallow in our sexual brokenness, and I won't leave you there either. No, he speaks clearly of the redemption of our sexuality. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, picking up in verse 11, after he listed in verse 9 and 10 all of these categories of sinfulness, including the sexually immoral, he says, And such were some of you. Some of you were sexually immoral people. Some of you were people who practiced homosexuality. Some of you were adult people who had committed adultery. Some of you were all of those things. But you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He goes on in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. In verses 19 and 20 again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, some of you, all of you in some way, have experienced sexual brokenness, either at the hands of someone who has sinned against you, or you have mishandled your sexuality in some way or another, like I did, like I have. We are all sexual sinners. The hope that Paul presents here is that is not the last word. You were washed. You can be completely clean. Think about that. If you've experienced sexual sin, you know how dirty you can feel. You know what kind of a stain it leaves. I know. But the the gospel says... That you're completely clean. There is no more stain. You, have to, you don't have to feel any more shame for what you've done. No matter how heinous. No matter how twisted. The moment you begin to trust in Jesus, you are completely clean, sanctified, made holy, justified, counted righteous. That can be you. 
If you've never trusted in Jesus, you can do that now and have all of your brokenness, all of your sin washed away like that. And for those of you who know the Lord Jesus, the word for you here is flee from sexual immorality. Notice what he says here. We can think about spiritual warfare. We think about Satan and the rulers and authorities that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. What does he tell us to do for them? He says, stand firm. Stand firm in the onslaught of the devil. But when it comes to sexual immorality that comes out of your own heart, don't stand firm. Run away. Flee. You can't stand. Sexual immorality is that destructive and damaging. It is a more dangerous enemy that comes from inside of you than the devil himself. Run from it. Flee. Run hard. Run fast. But don't just run away from sexual immorality. Run to Jesus. Run to the gospel. Run back to the cross when you're tempted to use your sexuality in a way that is harmful to yourself or others. Run away and run to the cross again and again and again and find there the true freedom that you have been given. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have the very power of God living inside of you. He can empower you to get away. He can empower you to run away successfully. He has set you free. And so live out that freedom. Don't Submit again to a yoke of slavery, Christian. Don't give yourself over to sexual sin. The gospel has more power than your twisted heart. The gospel has more power than whatever wounds or brokenness you've experienced. So run there and find your security in the Lord alone. Pray with me. Father, you have cared for us well by giving us these words. You have cared for us so well by being so frank and so honest about how ugly we are in ourselves. But thank you, thank you for refusing to leave us there, to wallow in the pit that we've dug for ourselves, in the pit that Adam created for us. Thank you that we are not left without hope. Thank you for sending your son to solve this problem. Thank you for your son who lived a life as a man, who experienced the depth of temptation, sexual temptation, and never gave in. Boggles my mind how that is even possible. Thank you that that account of perfect righteousness has been counted to me when I know the ways that I have failed. I know the ways that I have lived out this brokenness. Oh, Father, would you give us all a spirit of humility that owns and admits where we failed and where we've broken other people and ourselves. And would you give us the power to turn away, to run, to get help, whatever is needed. And I pray for the marriages in the room. I pray for the married couples that that their intimacy would grow deeper and more profound, that the marriages of this church would shine brightly the reflection of Christ's intimacy with us and the intimacy He wants us to experience with Him. Give us all hope for that. Help us to set 
our hopes and our affections on our full-bodied, resurrected unity with our Lord coming in the future. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. Thank you for putting your spirit within us to give us power to overcome such a powerful enemy that lives right here where we are, right here inside of us. Thank you that the battle has been won. We commit our bodies to you, O Lord. Help us to glorify you in them. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.